Hello! Today, Erica, Christie, and I will be delving into the world of Sasquatches with Harry and the Hendersons. We'll discuss a little bit about the cast, the background, the technical aspects, and delve deeply into the score on this heartwarming film. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Andrews, your host, and with me is Erica Christie. Erica, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully well today. How are you doing, Randy? Pretty good. Doing pretty good. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, when did you first see this movie, or how long ago did you see this movie? Ooh, that second question's a good question. Um, I saw it probably 10 times when I was a little kid and I don't think I've ever seen it since then. Uh, so it was, it was pretty weird for me to go back and watch something I hadn't seen since I was a little kid. So I liked it a lot when I was young, but I have not seen it in a good long while. Yeah. Um, I would agree. Uh, it's something that kind of resides in your childhood and you don't think about it until you watch it again and for me, that was the very case. I was like, okay, I think I know why I haven't seen it since. So, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of people don't maybe know what Harry and the Hendersons is. So I'm going to give kind of a breakdown of what the plot is. Because some people may not know. Uh, Harry and the Hendersons was released as Bigfoot and the Hendersons in the UK. And is, of course, a warm-hearted family comedy about the most famous mythological creature in Northern American folklore, the Sasquatch. Now, the film stars John Lithgow as George Henderson and has, he's an average family guy. And he takes his family on a trip and they're traveling home with his wife and children on a camping trip and accidentally hit what he thought was a large animal, but ends up being hairy. Upon investigation, he realizes that it's a Bigfoot and decides to take the carcass home. Unbeknownst to him, he wakes up and he becomes part of the family, whom they name Harry. And he's peaceful and intelligent, and they resolve to take him back to the wilderness. Uh, but finding opposition in the form of... William Deere and, uh, or no, a ruthless hunter named Lafleur, which is a weird name, and who has been tracking Harry for, for years. Um, surprisingly, he's French. Uh, the film <laughs> was directed by William Deere and co-stars Donna Michi, David Suchet, and Melinda Dillon, and had a modest commercial and popular hit 
1987, but went to win even... Okay, this is interesting. It won an Academy Award for Best Makeup for the Astonishing Bigfoot Effects applied to a 7-foot, 2-inch actor, Kevin Peter Hall. Is that astounding or what? Um, it is, and especially because Kevin Peter Hall, I don't think, had done very much prior to this. And, like, every single scene that Harry is in, just, like, Harry the character is astoundingly awesome. So Kevin Peter Hall just, like, nailed the performance, and I think that is really what pushed, pushed like, the actual, like, you know, makeup parts, like, really over the top into amazing because he did such a good job with the acting part of it. Yeah, and another indication of how tall this guy was was that they only added a little bit of feet to him to make him over eight foot tall um, Mm -hmm. because the makeup and the feet and everything else. But then it's also evidenced because... You look at John Lithgow and he's tall. He's six foot four and he stands close next to Hall. And so um, it makes a really noticeable difference that this guy is huge. Yeah, yeah, like I always thought like if they had cast like, you know, the father in the film to be someone who was like five foot seven, like just how gargantuan would Harry look uh, next to somebody who was that short. But yeah, if you see him next to John Lithgow and he's still towering over him, then you just know that this creature is just this like big, immense, burly thing um, that just like and how in the world did they get him onto the car is what I kept laughing at. But yes, 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 he is truly massive to be that much taller than John Lithgow. And what boggles my mind, sometimes you think, okay, let's get an actor to play John Lithgow's father in the movie. Well, they get M. Emmett Walsh, and he's actually only 10 years older than John Lithgow. Yeah. Mm, well, and, and that's that's funny. Like, the two of them, oh, I yeah. think, work well together. But you, you, if you look at, like, mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, uh, I mean, Harrison Ford is only 12 years younger um, uh, uh, than uh, drawing Sean a blank Connery? on his name all of a sudden. <laughs> Thank you. He's only 12 years younger than Sean Connery. So that sort of mm-hmm. thing happens a lot. Um, but yeah, 10 years is a pretty small number. So it just really goes down to, you know, characterization. But yeah, I thought mm-hmm. they did, both did yeah. a wonderful job. According to a uh, cryptozoologist, uh, Lauren Coleman, some of the characters uh, were based on varying degrees of actual figures in the search for Sasquatch. Um, Jacques Jacques Lafleur um, is a nod to a late Canadian René Dahinden and Dr. Wallace Wrightwood, which is played by Donna Michi, combined some qualities of John Green, Peter Byrne, and the late Dr. Grover Krantz. I've never heard of those people, but that's actually really interesting <laughs> that they kind of base some of those characters off actual people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I remembered that Don Amici was in this movie. So, and it's always, doesn't matter what movie he's in, whenever I see him, I just get a big smile on my face. But I completely did not realize that David Suchet (laughs) was in this movie. Um, For for people out there who are watching a lot of British television, he's the one who's been playing um, Agatha Christie's program for the last like 10, 15 years. That's who that is. And when he showed up on screen, I just got all excited and I was like, I had absolutely no memory of the fact that he, a British guy, was playing this French character in this film, and of course has been playing Poirot yeah. for you know however many years, for like, what, 10, 15 years, who's a Belgium character. And it's like, I'm not sure I ever actually have seen him play a British has, character. Because, like, every <laughs> movie that I've seen him, he's played yeah. a French character. Like, uh, seeing mm. uh, The In-Laws, he plays a French arms mm. dealer. And uh, interesting. I mean, he's a very great. <laughs> he's a great character actor. He's just really good at mm-hmm. playing a French yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, and he's got this look where he can play a lot of different mm-hmm. ethnic characters. So you can just kind of plop him into pretty much anything. And he's a good actor. He's got the right look, and he can just pretty much play anything. And I thought he was like hysterically yeah. funny in this particular I agree. movie. All right, so Richard Foley and Dana Middleton, uh, the two news anchors, um, were real-life news anchors and talk show hosts on Seattle's KOMO-TV. Their appearance in the movie was from the set of their nightly newscast, which is cool. And it went from 1983 to 1985 and then was replaced by a version of Jeopardy. And when it moved from Kiro to Como TV, another reporter is seen in the movie reporting from the actual newsroom of Como 4 News. So Middleton and Foley also hosted Northwest Afternoon, an afternoon daily talk show. So they followed suit in 1995 with uh, leaving uh, Como um, in, well... Middleton left in 1993 and Foley left in 1995. So they had their opportunities to be able to figure out that they could actually play characters in a movie, but they were still news news people, which is Mm -hmm. great. So I liked that the special effects artist Rick Baker said that Harry is his greatest and favorite character that he created. And he spent so much time on that character alone. And just thinking about the immense amount of hair that they had to apply to the costume. And (laughs) I'm not even sure if they had to apply it to the guy himself or if they had to, like, like paste stuff to him to be able to have the fur attached to him. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know this as a fact, but I'm fairly confident that, you know, Kevin was wearing like a giant suit. And I believe a lot of his different like facial features were all controlled like animatronically um, because things like, you know, Fraggle Rock and a few other shows, that's exactly what they did. They had 
a puppeteer who was physically inside the suit for some of the characters. And then they had a puppeteer who was doing the mechanical part, who was doing eyes opening and closing, who was doing, you know, raising eyebrows up and down and opening the mouth and closing the mouth, that sort of thing, who was just off camera, who was watching the puppeteer inside the suit and just kind of responding. Like you'd have to do it a few times to kind of get in a groove together. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like that's kind of what they were doing that Kevin was giving such a great performance as the person inside that giant practically giant Wookiee suit is mm -hmm. essentially what it was and that and I think there was someone offset now it was Kevin's eyes obviously but yeah. someone yeah. offset who was doing eyebrows yep. up and down who was doing some of the facial features was probably controlling some of the mouth like that sort of thing and I feel like that's what they were doing um, but Kevin inside the suit was really driving all of that and from the little that I know about him he seemed like a really good guy a really sweet guy and he loved playing Harry. Um, so whoever was helping him create that character, um, you know, Baker, who helped create him, and then the other, you know, puppeteers on set um, just had so much to work with because Kevin was just so, so excited about the character and loved everything what he was doing. So I think that's what was going on on set. Okay. That, that sounds plausible. Uh, one of the things that was interesting is Bill Martin, who co-wrote... The screenplay for Harry and the Hendersons wrote songs for Harry Nilsson's Harry album and is pictured wearing a bear suit inside the album's cover. Now, Martin says that the character Harry in the film is named after Harry Nilsson, which is interesting. <laughs> and then to top that all off, the drawing of Harry that is appearing in the film is an original design done by Rick Baker. So he did some really good like drawing work for that mm -hmm. film and uh, just captured Harry on the screen really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the funniest things that I get a kick out of with some of these uh, notes and stuff is the fact that a lot of the uh, trivia is regarding cars and guns. <laughs> so one of the one of the the trivia th points talks about the station wagon. And who of us when we were young, well, if you're close to 40 or around that age, you can remember going in on family vacations in a large station wagon. And that was what the Henderson station wagon was like. Uh, I mean, it was giant. <laughs> and I think it was actually the same station wagon that was in Lethal Weapon. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so with Murtaugh's <laughs> station wagon. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just like... Uh, yeah, now now I was never ever in one of the wood panel station wagons. I was. Um <laughs> I, I was not. I was not. Like from this or something like, you know, National Lampoons, like I wasn't in that with the the cheesy wood panel station wagons, but all through high school I did drive a Ford Taurus station wagon. 
And as much as you want to think, like, you know, a high schooler in the late 90s is going to hate having a station wagon, which I did, but I was a drummer. And so I was having to bring all of my percussion equipment, like all of my, you know, like my entire drum set and all of my stuff with me whenever I went out and did gigs. So having that station wagon was awesome, even though I hated it. (laughs) So, So I didn't do the wood panel station wagon, but I do know very well from, you know, late 80s to late 90s what station wagons were like. And they even give me, make me cringe just a little bit even now every time I see one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, sure, they they were a good functioning vehicle for big families. Uh, but then you you see scenes in the movie where they're on the exit for the freeway and there's like all these different exits and then Harry sticks his head out the window and does a Mm -hmm. siren and and yeah it's like oh (laughs) yeah every time you see a station wagon in a chase scene I just like fall around laughing because it's like how can a station wagon be in a chase scene okay so here's a rundown of some of the vehicles that it highlights in the notes. Um, Irene's car is a 1959 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Uh, Lefleur's SUV is a 1977 GMC Jimmy. Dr. Wrightwood's SUV is a 1948 Chevrolet panel truck. And the Henderson station wagon, of all things, is a Ford LTD Country Squire. Why they would name a vehicle a squire is beyond me. That's true. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, what people consider unique trivia, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the There's a scene where George sees Harry approach the deer head on the wall and examines, oh dear, and then had multiple meetings and one of them is that the director of the movie is named William Deere. (laughs) (laughs) And okay, so here's a part of the gun trivia. Uh, Lafleur's rifle is a Steyer Men Liquor (laughs) SSGPII with a double set triggers and he uses it in the final scene of the film. When Lafleur is hunting Harry in the woods, and he also carries like this four-inch Colt Python, which is tiny. And then you have George George's rifle that is a scoped Winchester Model seventy. For those that are into guns, that's some interesting trivia. However, I mean, I guess if you're hunting Bigfoot, it also makes sense. Mm-hmm. Did you know that they actually planned for a sequel to have that family, the Henderson family, reunite with Harry? And that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I did not know that they had originally planned a sequel, but I did know that there was something with the TV show that had gone on that I didn't really follow. Um, But I was always kind of curious, like, what they meant to do with the rest of the story. But Mm -hmm. I did not know they were planning a sequel. Yeah. And then you look at a nod to Harry and the Andersons in the show uh, 30 Rock, uh, season three, episode 13, 
where it says, uh, goodbye, my friend, because, uh, John Lithgow was prominently featured in that episode and it was kind of a callback to Harry and the Hendersons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the side of Ernie's face and the steadiness in his speech shows that uh, Joshua Rudoy's voice was added in later when he runs to get the camera in the closet, which is interesting. So maybe his voice, maybe he had trouble speaking uh, during the film. I mean, that's what I thought about. It's possible, but also this, I mean, this movie came out in 87, so it was filmed either 86 or very early 87. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that time, they re-recorded pretty much 100% of the audio Mm -hmm. um, because film cameras were so loud that you couldn't record audio on set. So my guess is that it was just one of those lines that they re-recorded, but because the actor was so young, he was probably having a problem trying to get his voice to match like with what his mouth was doing. Oh, yeah. um, so that's that's probably what my guess was because pretty much everything was re-recorded. Um, though yeah. the one thing I really, really liked about his character, particularly Ernie's character, was that he comes across as such like a stereotypical nerd. Like he's just like a little geeky boy. He's got like these really like Coke bottle thick glasses. But in the movie, in the movie, they don't make him come across like a nerd. Mm -mm. Like he's just a regular kid and he likes to shoot guns and he likes to, you know, go and play outside. And, you know, he's really cool in his family. And I really enjoyed that, Mm -hmm. that he kind of like for us watching, he kind of appeared like a nerd, but they didn't make him a nerd nerd, in the film. And I really, really liked that both that the filmmakers did that and that the little boy was so good that we didn't just automatically stereotype him. Like we actually like listened to him and we're watching for him and kind of rooting for him, like in everything that he did with Harry. So, yeah. And you know how in our episode about an American tale and how we talked about his hat, And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like, he'd have it back again. Um, (laughs) Well, there's there's a scene in Harry and the Hendersons where Harry crashes his head through the Henderson's ceiling. But in Mm -hmm. the next scene, the ceiling's undamaged. Mm -hmm. Little continuity error there. (laughs) (laughs) That probably means they film those scenes in the opposite order. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. So another thing I liked about the movie is that as the family is driving through the woods before hitting Harry, the sun bounces back and forth from high noon to late afternoon. And then the sun is in George's eyes when he hits Harry, but the sun is directly overhead in the shot just before. So obviously they also didn't film things quite right. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when Wrightwood's van approached the traffic jam, the two cars at the bottom of the right screen right of the screen start moving over into the breakdown lane to get out of the way before the shot changes. And this is long before the police car that causes all the traffic to move even is heard approaching, which is really funny. And uh, what did you think of the whole traffic jam scene? 
Um, I mean, I thought the whole thing was funny. Um, it, one of my only complaints about the movie is that this, for most of the second half of the movie, um, Harry is not with the family. Mm-hmm. And so that, like, I felt like the second half of the movie was a bit slow because of that. And as a response, I kind of felt like some of the music especially wasn't quite as exciting in the second half. But I don't feel like that was the composer's fault. I just feel like the movie wasn't quite as exciting in the second half. And so when Harry, you know, reunites with George and then George, you know, brings the whole family in and they get all get back into the car and then, you know, that whole traffic jam scene happens. I actually really enjoyed that part because for me, it was like Harry was finally back with the family, which was the best part of the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. So so it was fun because it was cool and it was fun because he was finally back with the family and like the kind of tempo of the movie and the heart of the movie kind of, you know, came back together all at the same time. So it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing. Yeah, I I would agree because a lot of times it was interesting how things developed in the movie, how there was so much heart. And I think that brings us to a discussion about the score because Bruce Broughton uh, composed the film or composed the score for the film and it was done with a large orchestra and it offers like this this rich blend of warm emotional dynamic excitement to where you have your really high highlights of the film such as there's a nine-minute night pursuit, which we'll discuss. Um, and then there's the traffic jam and then goodbyes. And it has like this melodic warmth and genuine expression uh, in the score. And I really like how Bruce Broughton, he just, he he got this emotional score together and he did this for young Sherlock Holmes and the boy that could fly or who could fly. Um, and you would think that maybe he might add in some elegant whimsy, like comedic whimsy. But he didn't make the score comedic. He didn't make it silly uh, like some scores that we've heard. Um, it was more serious. It was. It was like a major serious score. And one of the highlights that I like about it is how with the main title, it's fun, breezy, and it has this elegant, classical, inspired, allegro feeling that it's actually from Mozart's masterpiece. Um, I can't pronounce it. It's Ein Klein notch music i think that's it and it also introduces the score uh to have that reoccurring theme even at the end of the movie which is kind of cool and uh overall like what are your initial thoughts about the uh, the score in general Mm -hmm. Uh, The two things that stick out to me the most are, 
one, uh, he does a great job with the adventure part of the movie because that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. The, the movie isn't necessarily focused on the family. The movie is really about Harry being taken out of his element, you know, the fish out of the water uh, in this strange environment. And is he going to get back to the family who's trying to get him back to his family? So, like, the adventure part is huge. Uh, the second part that I like the most um, is that so many of the tracks, like you mentioned the, one of the nine-minute tracks, that's not even the longest track. But some of the tracks he has, like, every, you know, 45 seconds to a minute, mm-hmm. there's, like, a new... Thing that happens, whether it's a new theme, a new motif, some new melody, like like he's just constantly changing up and doing all these different musical things, and I like that so much. Like it's so easy to do that and make everything sound muddy, but like I feel like listening to some of his like you know nine to thirteen minute tracks, some of those tracks are awesome mm-hmm. and like you never you never feel like you're getting lost you never yeah. feel like you're being bombarded you never feel like too many things are happening even if he has like eight different motifs in one in one track mm-hmm. like you just you just feel like everyone is a national uh, a natural progression from whatever happened immediately before so adventure and changing things up and i think he does a wonderful job at both agreed uh really Bruce Broughton, I mean, honestly, I don't think he can do any wrong. He did the score <laughs> to uh, Rescuers Down Under, and that has a brilliant, sweeping mm. score that's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he takes, like, steps to make an action piece really stand out. And that's what he does. I Like, I agree with how he takes those elements, even in Harry and the Hendersons, and actually makes you care about Harry and you really feel for him. And of course they, they add to it by making Harry look so emotional, like having such Mm -hmm. expression in his face. And they really worked with the makeup to make him look that way and have it like time just perfect to where things just clicked. Mm -hmm. So I I just really enjoy how anyone that ever has admired Bruce Broughton and his thematic strength, um, he has this mastery over the orchestra and he has an emotional straightforwardness, but also brings that score out to anyone's liking, really. So today I'd like to play a few cues First, I'd like to play the main title, then Harry ta- or taking Harry home, and then Harry in the house. Um, I write, I really like these pieces of music for the fact that the main title reminds me of one of those composers that can just com- play this cue from a concert hall and make it sound like a concerto, and it's bright and enjoyable, and then with taking Harry home it seems very tense but then is a bit playful in the motive behind Harry or the Hendersons and then even in Harry in the home it highlights the enjoyment of having a hairy beast in a home that's a bit quirky but still fun <laughs> um mm. Erica what are your thoughts on those 
Yeah, I really liked the main title. Um, the first half, uh, I mean, he keeps it really light and fun and very much pushing like the adventure part of the story, um, especially, you know, the violins, all of the, you know, short, quick notes that he has in that first half. Mm-hmm. And then right at the midpoint, it kind of goes off into almost this like, you know, dark, murky. It's very much the opposite of what the first half is. And I kind of like that he was sort of playing with both halves, you know, Harry on an adventure. Also, Harry is kind of been kidnapped and he's in mortal danger and like you know he was kind of playing with both sides of that um and i really liked harry in the house um, because again it was one of those tracks where you know every minute or so it's like a new musical movement um tonally it's different there's different music motifs there's different instruments working together and he's just kind of throwing all this music together in which we're just kind of feeling that harry is kind of out of place Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out like where he fits into the family so those are the two that i like the most yeah so let's go ahead and play those cues
right, so next, what I'd like to play is Tracking Harry, Harry Takes Off, and The Great Outdoors. Now, this really illustrates, like, the drive that is behind our villain, Lafleur, and who is purely there to hunt down a Sasquatch and kill him because of an obscene obsession with it. Uh, what do you think of these, Erica? Um, I especially liked the first track, the tracking Harry. Mm -hmm. Um, And as, you know, someone who was in, you know, bands in different musical groups from the age of like, you know, 11 all the way through college, um, you know, being in high school in like in orchestras, you don't hear a lot from like, you know, the French horns and the oboes and some of those, I don't want to say obscure music, you know, instruments, because they're always in the group. Mm-hmm. But this is one of those tracks. It's a short track. It's it's maybe a minute and a half long. But it's one of those tracks where some of the more obscure instruments really shine. And I just always loved hearing them. Like French horns, especially. They're not as brassy, as sharp and sharp as trumpets are. Mm-hmm. But they're also not as like, you know, bellowing as like, you know, baritones and tuba. They have this strange position kind of in between the two where they have their own unique sounds um and oboes especially like you don't ever confuse an oboe with like a clarinet or a (laughs) french horn or a different instrument you hear an oboe and you're like wow that's an oboe Mm -hmm. and i just really loved it because he let the other instruments kind of back off a little bit Mm -hmm. and he lets you know the french horns and the oboes and some of the other instruments just kind of really shine in this with their beautiful unique sounds and i just feel like we don't get enough music where we hear those particular two instruments because everybody else who's a little brassier and a little shinier kind of takes the lead and it's like I just really loved being able to hear those yeah it's nice to get those different instruments um, apart from say a modern score that we hear nowadays because people Mm -hmm. feel like all they have to hear is constant music or mm-hmm. constant, like, oh, let's bring in the whole orchestra rather than just a few <laughs> pieces of, of uh, instruments to mm-hmm. actually drive home the point of what a score really helps us to learn mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Well, now let's go ahead and play those cues.
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Uh, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Lastly today, I'd like to play for us Night Pursuit, Traffic Jam, Footprints, Goodbyes, and Harry and the Hendersons. I love how these cues really incorporate even the sounds of like animals or beasts into the score itself. You can almost hear Harry howl out into the world with our family of misfits. Uh, Erica, what do you think of this? Uh, yeah, you've mentioned Night Pursuit a couple times, and it was one of my favorite tracks here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the, it's it's almost ten minutes long, and every forty five seconds, there's like a new motif or a new melody, and it's just constantly evolving and changing. And I just I just loved every bit of it. Um, and also Traffic Jam, which again we've talked about. I love the fun and the adventure, and uh, and a lot of like the solo percussion elements, which got to, we got to hear a lot of, um, which didn't like really get focused on in a lot of the previous tracks so that kind of stood out in that particular track yeah and that it really expresses it well um erica where can people find you uh, yeah the easiest place would probably be at my website which is ericachristie.com E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E.com. And you can find all my social media, all my videos, all the other stuff, you know, crazy photos that I take. Uh, Pretty much everything is on there. (laughs) Awesome. Well, you can find me at SoundtrackAlley.net, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Facebook, and Twitter at SoundtrackAlley. All those links will be in the show notes. And so now we'll play these cues, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.